0: Well, this is a long passage, and it seems like there's kind of some interesting chunks and sections that don't go together, but I promise you they do. We'll see that together this morning. In our passage, we're really presented with the theme of vision, the theme of sight, and the contrast between vision and blindness. But it goes much far beyond blindness in a physical sense alone. Jesus shines a light on what it means to see him clearly, and he warns about spiritual blindness. And we're going to see three realities in this passage this morning. First, that Jesus isn't your genie. Second, that sin ruins everything. And third, that Christians must fight spiritual blindness. So our passage begins with a familiar and repeated miracle of Jesus. First, he fed five thousand, now he's feeding four thousand. This isn't a repeating of the same story. This is a second time that Jesus has performed this miracle. And just like he did last time, he demonstrates his heart and his character as he, as he pours out his compassion for these people that are hungry. Verses 2 and 3 says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will fade on the way, faint on the way, and some of them will come from far away. So though his priority is always to feed our hearts with truth, he always cares about the physical needs too. He meets all of their needs. And he, again, just takes a handful of loaves and fish, he multiplies them out to feed thousands. And then in verse 8, it says that there were seven baskets of leftovers when all was said and done. So the people leave, and the disciples are on to their next destination. But I want us to focus on what happens next in verses 11 through 13. "'The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign?' Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So per usual, the Pharisees have come looking for a fight with Jesus as they keep doing. They want to argue with him, but ultimately, see here, they want to discredit him in front of everyone else. And we know that because, firstly, that's been their tactic this whole time. They're always trying to trip him up with with theological things, with traditions that he's breaking. They're always trying to expose flaws and make him look bad to others. Usually when they try to do that with scripture, it doesn't go very well because Jesus kind of just shows them that he's, he's God and he knows God's word better than they do. But this time they try a different tactic. They request a sign. They request a miracle on the spot from here. And I think we have to step back and think about what's going on because Jesus has been performing miracles. So that might not seem like a big deal. It might, might not seem like much, but really what they're doing is they're treating him like some kind of circus performer. They're asking him, dance monkey, do what we want on the spot. Because we demand this of you. See, the Pharisees, they don't believe in Jesus. They have already decided that he's not the Savior. And so they're just looking for ways to destroy his credibility and to shame him in front of others. So when I read this, and I, specifically when I saw this, this disbelief the Pharisees had in asking for a sign, it reminded me of one of the most despicable, vile, and hate-cringe-inducing characters in all of fiction that I've read, Dolores Umbridge. And some of you obviously know what I'm talking about. If you're not familiar, she's a character from the Harry Potter books. And as a disclaimer, if you love it, if you hate it, if you think no one should read it, I'll explain just so that we're all on the same page. Because I think one thing people can have in common together is hating a really bad villain together. And so here's a little bit about Dolores. She's a self-righteous, prideful, oppressive and vindictive person, devoid of empathy, kindness, or any likable human characteristics. She treats people with utter condescension, behaving under an elitist presumption that she's always right, that she's the smartest person in the room, and that she's superior to every person that she interacts with. She refuses to accept truth when it's presented to her, and instead asserts her disbelief over others. And she does that by putting people down, publicly shaming people, belittling people, and just eviscerating people People publicly. She's part of the cultural and intellectual elite and she shows all of the tropes of how a person in that place tends to act towards everyday people and all of that is made so much worse by the way that she looks and the way that she talks. She wears these like bright pink dresses and talks in this like fake sweet high-pitched voice that's totally false and it's kind of this bizarre tonal and visual irony where her presentation on the outside could not be further from the truth of what's going on inside. Dolores Umbridge is a fictional character that is in many ways an archetype that exemplifies the kind of characteristics we see from the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Scripture. Look with me at what Jesus had to say about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27 through 28. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness." So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, just like Dolores Umbridge, on the outside, they portray themselves as righteous and upright and good. But on the inside, their intentions are evil and their hearts are darkened. They portray themselves as men of spirituality and wisdom, but what's really inside is death and cynicism. And though they ask Jesus to perform a sign, as many people have, that might seem innocuous on the outside, their intentions tell us that it's actually deceptive, because they've already decided, as we've seen, to hate Jesus and to disbelieve who he is. So how does Jesus respond? Well, Mark tells us that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. That Greek phrase, he sighed deeply in his spirit— it's used one other really key place in Scripture in John 11:33, when he first learns that his friend Lazarus has died, and he finds Mary crying and weeping. It's powerful to watch how Jesus responds to the Pharisees here, because there are times when he's angry with them. If you were to read the rest of Matthew 23, I mean, he just goes one thing after another and just takes them, tears them apart. But here, Jesus is grieved. He's deeply grieved in his spirit. And it says he sighs in a way that humans do when they're experiencing a deep emotional pain. Certainly, Jesus knows their intentions, and he knows what they're trying to do, but his grief goes beyond the religious leaders. Because next he says, why does this generation always seek a sign? There's two key reasons why. First, we see throughout the New Testament that the people of Jesus' day— they always wanted something from him. They always wanted a demonstration of his power. They wanted proof. They wanted miracles. They came, him to see, to, they came to see him do the impossible. They want evidence, and they want irrefutable proof that he is who he says he is. And they lead with skepticism. And the Pharisees are, are probably the pinnacle, the prime example of this kind of attitude. Second reason, the Pharisees aren't looking for a true savior to humbly submit themselves to. They aren't looking for a savior that is who Jesus is. They're looking for a savior that they want that will do what they want. Blazekian clearly pinpoints the problem in a way that I can't probably put any better. The kind of Messiah they want will never come. They are determined to find a compliant Superman who is endowed with heavenly powers and will fulfill their own earthly program. The Pharisees don't want a savior to confront their sin. They don't want a savior to lead them They're looking for a Messiah who will meet their wishes. What they really want, truly, is freedom from their government. And they want a king that will fulfill their earthly dreams to give them cultural influence and political power. That is what they want, plain and simple. And this is why so many people rejected Jesus in his day, because he came preaching the gospel, confronting sin, and then caring for and offering hope to the broken and the outcasts in their society. This is not what they wanted from a savior. This is not what they were hoping for. And so when Jesus says this generation, he's talking about all that are rejecting him way beyond the Pharisees. And people today are no different. To be honest, we are no different. We want proof. We want airtight logic and scientific evidence before we'll accept anything. Our human nature is skeptical and we struggle with faith. This is why the effectiveness of Christian apologetics, logic, reasoning, and philosophy is severely limited. They have value, certainly, but they are empty tools on their own because they can never replace or result in our faith. Those who are looking for foolproof evidence that Jesus is who he says he is often have decided not to believe and have put the burden on others to convince them otherwise. Faith in Jesus is... Being convinced towards belief. It's about being loved towards belief. The beautiful, redemptive person and work of Jesus Christ, who gives us what we don't deserve forgiveness, mercy, and grace as he takes our place on the cross. This should result in awe, worship, and full surrender to God. But we can be guilty of treating God like the Pharisees treated Jesus, rather than worshiping him, submitting everything to him. We are, we are making him out to be what we want him to be, what we think God should be and should do. We believe the lies of our world, the lies of the prosperity gospel, that he exists to give us, give us lives of comfort, lives of ease, to give us cultural influence and political power. Certainly this last year has exposed our Christians' deep-seated desire for those things that have not been promised to us and are not what Jesus is here to do. Which brings us to our first point this morning. Jesus isn't your genie. Okay, so Jesus and the disciples, they leave after this takes place with the Pharisees. They take their boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's look what happens next, starting in verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. He said to them, Do you not yet understand? Well, We get a little bit of a comedic break here in the middle of section here because the disciples have a little bit of an oopsie. They somehow forget to bring food after seven baskets full of extra food that Jesus made for them. And instead, it says that they only had one loaf with them in the boat, and all of a sudden, they're worried. They're freaking out. And then Jesus comes in, and he cautions them with a very bread-appropriate metaphor. He warns them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And that might seem weird to you because, okay, the disciples forgot some groceries. Why are we talking about Pharisees? Why are we talking about King Herod? Probably would sound offensive to them. They're like, why are you comparing us to them in any way? Well, first we have to understand, what is leaven? Leaven is just yeast. So it's an agent that makes dough rise through a process of fermentation. And it's a powerful symbol for the people of Israel, for the Jews, because it's something that is throughout Scripture that we've seen. God prohibited using leaven for the showbread, which was used in offerings. But also, he prohibited using leaven in the bread that they used in the Passover celebration, which is still used today. But it's also used throughout teachings in the New Testament, something calling back to that same story. And I think 1 Corinthians 5 is probably the most helpful passage in understanding what Jesus is warning about here. Here, Paul warns about the dangers of sexual immorality that are taking place in the Corinthian church. The situation in Corinth is pretty bad. It says in that passage that things are so bad that people are doing things that even the world would detest, like a man sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul writes some pretty strong words about how there's to deal with sexual sin that's unrepentant. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Many of you probably gave, or know someone who gave sourdough bread a shot over this last year. One of the many things that people tried to do to deal with all of the time alone, especially in those first couple months of the pandemic. And it was really popular, so popular, that you literally could not buy yeast or flour, anywhere. It was crazy, you go to the grocery store and it's like somehow everyone's at home making sourdough. But I wasn't interested in sourdough because I had a plan that I've been hatching for quite literally years for something so much better than sourdough, pizza. As Michael Scott once asked, what's better, a medium amount of good pizza or all you can eat of pretty good pizza? And the answer is medium amount of good pizza, obviously. Come on, no one wants a bunch of little Caesars. So I love pizza and I've been researching how to make it, how to make the dough from scratch and you know how they make it in Naples and all. I, I love cooking and so that's something I've just been interested in for a long time. And finally, we were able to get a small gas-powered pizza oven for our backyard that can get to a thousand degrees. So I finally had the opportunity to do it and so once I finally found some yeast, which took way too long, um, I was able to do it and it was pretty surprising how like literally a gram and a half of yeast in a 600 gram dough ball, just some numbers, because I'm sure you're going to use those later. (laughs) I mean, literally, this thing expands like two to three times, just a tiny bit. You would never know it was there. And it expands a crazy amount of time, which results in some incredible pizza that some of you know, because some of you had my pizza. If you know, you know, it's delicious stuff. And you see with yeast that just a tiny bit of it has a visual and a substantial impact on the whole. It can't hide anywhere; it affects the whole thing. And it is Father's Day after all, so I have a, a little bit of a related story that I heard when I was a kid that's a true story um, that I'm gonna relate to you, a little dad tale for us. So the story goes, there's a father and his two sons, and his two sons, they're, they're, they're like junior high age, and they keep begging their dad to let them watch R-rated movies with their friends. And their dad keeps explaining that the rules of the house are you can't watch these movies because they have inappropriate stuff in it. They got nudity and tons of violence and language, and the boys just keep protesting. But dad, it's just a little bit. There's just a tiny bit of it. It's not a big deal. The rest of the movies are so good. We can, we can just get over that, and we'll just kind of ignore it, and it's not a big deal. Later on that day, the father's downstairs in the kitchen eating a brownie, and there's a plate of brownies sitting on the counter. And the boys, being boys, see the brownies and start running towards them, and Right before they grab them, the father says, oh, by the way, I put a teaspoon of dog poop in these brownies. And they just freak out and they're like, dad, you're eating that? What, what's wrong with you? And he's like, what's the big deal? It's just a little tiny bit. The rest of the brownies are totally fine are normal brownies. I think you get the point. Jesus is warning us about the dangers of leaven that the Pharisees and Herod have. He's warning them about the decaying dangers of disbelief and sin. Just like yeast and dough or poop and brownies, it will affect everything. It just does. And Jesus asked them, why are you worried about bread? Don't you un- How do you not understand? Though you have eyes and ears and brains, you don't see, you don't hear, and you don't remember. It's hard to fathom why they would be worried about bread after seeing Jesus do what he did multiple times. Even after seeing him perform miracle after miracle, casting out demons, healing the terminally ill, and feeding thousands of people, they still struggle to believe. And Jesus says, do you still not understand? They still harbor some disbelief in them. Their need for proof over and over again gets in the way of their faith. They haven't put their faith fully in Jesus. They still have some skepticism and some uncertainty within them. James Edwards puts it this way. The disciples mirror humanity at large, which is so stuck in its own world and cares that it is blind and deaf to God. The disciples are anxious about a lack of bread, but Jesus is anxious about their lack of faith. Couldn't have said it better. In the book of Mark, we've continued to see this kind of ring around the rosy where Jesus performs insane miracles and demonstrates who he is, and then the disciples quickly forget and disbelieve. And I don't know about you, but when I see them, when I read about the disciples, I feel convicted too. Because we are all drawn towards skepticism. We all harbor disbelief in different ways. We worry, like they did, too much about the things of this world and not as much as we should about the things of his kingdom. And it's okay to not be okay because you and I can't be faultless. We can't be sinless. It's just not okay to stay there. We have to deal with our sin because just like the leaven that Jesus is warning about, it will spread and it will affect everything. And That brings us to our second point this morning. Sin ruins everything. Let's track with what's happened so far. Jesus, again, miraculously fed a group of 4,000 people. The Pharisees came to argue with him, trying to discredit him by demanding a miracle, and he refuses. And on cue, the disciples become anxious very quickly when they experience physical needs, forgetting what Jesus has already done for them, and they expose a deeper level of disbelief that they still have. Look with me back in the passage, starting in verse 22 on the screen. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So we see here a blind man is now brought to Jesus, begging just to touch him. And we can't, we can't perceive that this is a coincidence because you can see already how this is fitting in what Jesus is trying to demonstrate here. Jesus has been warning about disbelief and blindness among those who have literally physically seen him teach and perform miracles. But now we see a man who has never seen him, but beyond that, he can't see anything at all. It says that a group of people had to bring him to Jesus because he couldn't even navigate on his own. And Jesus spits on the man's eyes. He lays on his hands and he asks, Do you see anything? And the man can see, but not clearly yet. His vision is still blurry. So I remember when I was in high school, one day in biology class, I noticed from the back of the room, looking at the chalkboard, which is not a thing anymore, as I have supposed, um, it was a little harder to read than normal. And I thought it wasn't a big deal, and then I realized this is bad news my eyes are going out, I need glasses. And as a side, I'm an Enneagram three, so I hate like, weakness and I'm trying, I was trying to like, achieve things. And so that drove me absolutely crazy. And I hated it, so I went with contacts because I just hated having glasses on my face and having to remember to bring them everywhere. But they, dro- they dried my eyes out and it was just awful. And so I was always hoping and praying that somehow like, the vision would reverse or that God would heal me or something. And I remember one day, I think it was probably like freshman year of high school or something, I woke up and I look out my window, and I grew up in Northern California, and I'm looking and I see the trees and the Sierra Nevada mountains in the back, backdrop, and I can see. I can see clearly. And I'm like freaking out. This is amazing. I've, I've been so sick of this and dealing with this for so long. And then I make my way to the bathroom, and I realize I left my contacts in the night before, <clears throat> which is super embarrassing that you would pray for that, get excited, and then realize that it didn't happen. Um, yeah, so bad. But... Years later, I experienced a real transformation with my site when I got LASIK surgery, which is a crazy story and in itself an experience, but what a different experience, let me tell you. It um, took about 10 seconds for the procedure to happen. But my vision was not clear right away. I mean, I, I sat up afterwards, and they asked me to read some things, and I could read a little bit, but it was blurry around the sides. At nighttime, lights were really kind of foggy, and there were halos around things, and it took about a year for that to go away, and it took a couple months for like a lot of other things to go away. Though my vision was being restored, it was blurry at first, and there was kind of this progressive process of healing before I could experience full and true sight like I do today. The narrative in Mark, as we've said and as we've seen, is about seeing sight versus blindness, belief versus disbelief. Jesus's mission has been to progressively reveal himself to his people. We've seen that over and over as he tells people not to share certain things or he he doesn't allow situations to expose who he really is early on. He's progressively revealing himself as the hope of salvation that is in the flesh. He doesn't do it all at once. He does it in pieces and with care over time. And he's been demonstrating his power through miracles and through his wisdom as he teaches. And the disciples have been experiencing this process firsthand as, they're, as the word comes from quite literally being discipled, being trained by Jesus. They are progressively and growing and increasing in their understanding of who he is and on the truth of the gospel message. We are presented with a contrast here between the blind man and the disciples. See, the disciples, they have sight of firsthand witness to the Messiah, yet they disbelieve, they doubt, and they still forget who he is. But this blind man, he lives in total darkness. He's totally helpless and dependent on other people for everything, and yet he has faith and he begs to see Jesus. Jesus. Again, the blind man lives in that total darkness, but the disciples don't, and yet they have a kind of darkness that's different. They have a spiritual darkness that they experience at times. Now, if you're a believer, you might be thinking, okay, how does this apply to me? How does this whole sight versus blindness thing apply to me? 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9 tells us this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. As followers of Jesus, we must be on guard against that spiritual blindness. His power has indeed saved us. We have been freed from bondage to sin. There is hope. He is the light of the world to come to save. He came to save, seek, protect, and redeem the lost. And praise Jesus for that. But we have a response that is required of us. And our response is entering into the process that is called sanctification, where we become more like Jesus and we see more clearly over time. As the passage said, we put on virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly and sisterly affection, and love. And if these things are increasing in us, they're growing in us and we're pursuing these things, they keep us from being unfruitful or ineffective. But if you lack these things, you're going to become blind, as it says, forgetting that you were cleansed from your sins. Spiritual blindness comes when we are lacking in holiness and we're lacking in obedience, but ultimately when we are not pursuing Jesus with our lives. We have to be on guard that we don't fall into a spiritually lazy lifestyle that ultimately leads us into spiritual blindness. Which brings us to our third and final point this morning. Christians must fight spiritual blindness. So for the unbeliever this morning, listening, or if you're here and you don't know Jesus and you're just kind of checking things out, I hope you hear this clear message of hope from Jesus that he is the merciful, sight-giving, sin-forgiving Savior. Apart from him, there is only darkness, like this blind man, and left alone to fight your sin and to deal with your struggles, it's hopeless. You've experienced that on your own. But Jesus has overcome sin, and he wants to change your life completely, to transform you into something new. And he doesn't expect you just like he didn't expect this blind man, to clean himself up, to fix his life, to get his act together. He receives us as broken and needy as we all are. Romans 10.9 says that all you need to do is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. If that's you and you want to do that, we would love to talk with you, to hear your story and to walk with you and what that looks like and answer any of your questions. For the believer in in the room this morning or listening to us from afar, there are a few clear warnings. First is a question. Do you want Jesus? Do you want to know him? love him, and be transformed to be less like you and more like him? Or are you like the Pharisees? Do you want something from Jesus? Because remember, Jesus is not your genie. He's not here to conform to your will, to your desires, to what you think is supposed to happen in our world his purpose isn't to give you power, money, authority, or an easy life. He isn't here to reform the government to what you think is best or to give Christians prominence and cultural influence in our world. Don't believe those lies because Jesus's mission clearly is to seek and save the lost. Second question for us. Have you gotten comfortable with your salvation secured in heaven? Have you neglected to pursue holiness and to fight your sin? Whether it's in your mind or it's with your body, whether it's visible to other people or it's something that's private. We must fight our sin because it's deadly and it ruins everything. It pervades just like that leaven everywhere. We have to flee temptation, not flirt with it and play with it. We have to kill our sin and put it behind us, repent of it, not play with it and toy with it and try to deal with it. You can't shove it to the side. You can't try to manage it. You can't minimize it. You have to kill it. And the only way to do that is to confess it, to confess it to one another, and then to repent of our sin, to turn from the behavior, literally to turn 180 degrees, go the other direction, and then to seek accountability and help from each other to not go back to that place. Scripture says time and time again, it's like clothing. We have these old, ratty, dirty clothes that are our old ways, our old self, and the sinful tendencies we have. And we have to continually practice taking off those old clothes and putting on the new clothes that Jesus has given us, of righteousness, of truth, and of the newness of life he has for us. And it's a continual process. It's not a one-time thing. Those clothes of knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and love. So what does that mean? Read your Bible. Spend time with the Lord, not just to gain theological understanding, but to know him. Pray to him. Dedicate yourself to time of solitude and quiet just to spend it with him to hear his voice. Seek to obey him in all spheres of your life, in your family, in your workplace, in your marriage, at school if you're in school, with friends, and certainly in your church community. Pursue Jesus by obeying him and do that by submitting your whole life to him, not keeping little parts compartmentalized that you won't surrender, that will eat away at you and will destroy everything because of the deadliness of sin. We all need this. I need to hear this too, because we're all prone to getting a little comfortable to spiritual forgetfulness and we're susceptible to the dangers of spiritual blindness. We forget what God has done for us. We think it's a one-time deal that we can just live however we want and the cares of this world start to eat away at us and we get totally distracted from what God tells us that we're supposed to do and who he says that he is. Remember, sin ruins everything just like that leaven and if you don't deal with it, it will spread. It will crush you, it will kill you, and it will corrupt so much around you. It'll hurt other people ultimately. Jesus wants you to know him. He doesn't just want you to do the things you're supposed to do because it's a dutiful responsibility. He's inviting you into a newness of life where there is joy and peace and fullness that you cannot have anywhere else. I just want to encourage all of us this morning not to see this as as Jesus being heavy-handed or a list of rules, but an invitation into a way of living with Jesus that leads to the fullness of life that we're all looking for often in the wrong places. We want that peace, joy, and wholeness that only our Savior Jesus can give us. Bow your heads and pray with me. Oh, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, how it calls us out when we need to hear it, God, how you encourage us towards obedience, how we are reminded of truth in these things. Lord, and so I pray that we would simultaneously be convicted where we need to be convicted, where we have been lazy, where we have been blind, where we've been forgetful, or when we're just trying to make you and our walk with you something that meets our needs versus trying to follow you and your will. Father, forgive us. But God, we also thank you for your mercy and for your grace and your patience, that this is a process. We are all in a process of knowing you more, of becoming more like you, of dealing with our sin, and we're going to all do it imperfectly, but God, help us as a community to do this together, to help each other, to link arms, to march forward, to help each other when we fall, that we be quick to confess sin and not afraid of what people will think, and that when someone confesses sin to us, that we walk with them and that we help them walk through repentance and recovery. God, we need you so desperately that we might put our sin to death, but all the more that we might pursue you and do all that you've called us to do in this life. We thank you for the beauty and the wholeness of your word that speaks to each and every one of us, no matter where we are in life or what's going on. It's true, it's good, and we thank you for it. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.